Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. So we have interesting people and Emily Jashinsky <laughs> on every month. Uh, <laughs> um, but Emily is a, a senior fellow with us at IWF. Uh, that is her most important of many hats. Uh, but she is also the culture editor over at The Federalist. She has a show called Counterpoints with Ryan Grimm on uh, Breaking Points, which is Crystal Ball and, and uh, Sagar and Jetty's show that's very popular independent media show recommend you check it out um as well as many other hats including with young america's foundation she's just she's just running around she's just everywhere uh emma Lujashinsky, thanks for coming back on uh once a month with me to discuss what we think was important in the last month and as you know i look forward to it every month i get the invite in my uh inbox and i'm all ready to go <laughs> yeah, we decided that uh, that we're just letting AI schedule. I don't even ask Emily anymore when she has time to do this. I just put it on her calendar via the magic of scheduling tools. Um, so just allow allow the machines to rule your life, Emily. True story. Um, so I wanted to kick it off with something that feels very weirdly retro, um, and that is to talk about Me Too. Um, I thought this moment of hysteria had kind of passed or at least ebbed away. Um, but it turns out that it hasn't. We have this this big new scandal about Russell Brand. Um, and I guess just to kick it all off, I mean, what do you, what do you think about this? How we should deal with this, the, the obvious political elements? You know, how do we with integrity deal with this kind of issue when we know that there's this media background and sort of political background to it? Um, do you think we can still objectively evaluate uh, these kinds of cases in the public square? Absolutely not. And I was thinking, uh, because initially my instinct was to disagree with you. Um, we would we had been talking last week on the show about uh, Russell Brand, and I think you phrase it as the reemergence of, re- of Me Too. And my instinct was to disagree with that. And I was thinking about it today. And I was like, well, maybe my disagreement is more semantics. But at the same time, I had the thought that it's not so much the reemergence of Me Too as it is a reminder uh, that we will always be living with Me Too now, (laughs) that we've decided um, as a society our standard for who gets to participate in the discourse is basically um, going to be adjudicated in the court of public opinion and uh, the United Kingdom's government pressuring Rumble to do what YouTube and Google did voluntarily, which is demonetize Russell Brand's content, um, is one of the most frightening and shocking things. I, I guess I shouldn't call it shocking, but it, it's still a shock to the system, even if it's not necessarily surprising. Um, they actually wrote a letter to Rumble. R- Rumble replied that they're standing fast, and that's obviously smart for both a, a business reason. It's the one thing that distinguishes them from YouTube, basically, and a moral reason. But the letter that the UK sent was chilling, and that is an overused word, but I think completely appropriate in this case. Um, and for me, it was just a reminder that, you know, while cancel culture ebbs and flows, these standards are now the muscle memory of the corporate and sort of elite sector. Um, and it's what they default to, uh, even though we've sort of, you have Jennifer Aniston coming out and saying, cancel culture, kind of dumb. Um, and we have this uh, almost comfort in the sense that uh, free speech is sort of won out and whatever. Um, 
it, it really like we, we developed a very unhealthy muscle memory uh, in during the the sort of frenzied days of cancel culture and me too. And I think it's with us to stay. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to um, explore more the the tech part of this, which seems to fit nicely into um, what I know Emily you've been writing about, talking about for a long time in terms of uh, the, the private arm of censorship. Um, as an aside, I mean, I, I uh, a, a friend of mine on Twitter um, said, and he, he had this series of tweets, he's a professor, and he said one of his Belarusian grad students, um, one of his favorite students, you know, she, would, when she was talking to him about some of these issues, she would check behind her, um, like look over her left shoulder, look over her right shoulder, and then say, well, you know, on gender stuff, you guys are a little crazy here in America. Um, which I think is the perfect sad commentary on on where we're at, and that was possible with this private system, which we'll get to in a minute. But just to to push that discussion off by, by a few minutes and discuss the underlying material, because so I've I've gotten some pushback. Um, like I do this podcast with Richard Hanania every week, and he was saying, "Well, why can't we just objectively evaluate? Why can't we read the this list of charges that's you know put out?" Um, and why can't we just objectively evaluate whether they're serious or not, whether they're credible or not, whether there's any evidence for them or not? Um, and I think that would have been my view sort of pre-Brett Kavanaugh era. Um, but now, even doing that, I sort of I have this very gut-level reaction to being pulled into doing that, um, to essentially be pulled into the role of jury when we know that there's no... Um, no fairness in how the facts will be presented and no fairness in how the targets are selected at all. Right. And so I feel like I'm participating. I'm like involuntarily participating. If I sit there and say, well, you know, this charge sounds kind of bad. This one is less serious. This woman seems credible. This woman doesn't. Um, I feel like I'm being waylaid into this kind of like sick humiliation ritual where we know why this guy was selected right now. And by the way, not 10 or 20 years ago when he was doing all of these things and getting cheered by the culture around him for doing it. Um, like we know why, and I can't, I can no longer separate that from the analysis of, of the objective facts. Like some of these charges may be true. Some of them may be false, but I resent being asked to evaluate them now. Cause I know that by doing that and maintaining that kind of objectivity, I'm participating in the way that these targets were selected in this like bizarre ritual we now have um, that is aimed not just at, me- at celebrities and men in power, but actually often I feel like just after they lose it or they become unpopular in some way, right? Um, even the Harvey Weinstein thing, like I don't know much about Hollywood insiders or whatever, but but some folks have written that he was definitely on his way down, that his power was was very much on the downslope in terms of uh, within the industry when when they finally got him, right, for all of those things that he did over the years, um, it just seems like, I don't know, I, I, I resent, it seems like emotional, a kind of emotional blackmail to basically be like, well, either you objectively evaluate these or you b- believe all women, those will be the two sides, but either way you're, you're participating, right? You are, are being called to participate in evaluating what, you know, Lothario Russell Brand did 20 years ago, as though there's any forum outside of court that has any fair way of adjudicating that. I just, I don't know. I resent the whole like game that I'm supposed to play. It's interesting because there's been this like commodification of the the discourse. And I'm just thinking of this right now with Twitter, you had advertisers coming in 
basically to sponsor a free platform or to prop up a free platform that was reliant on uh, basically intense and politically charged conversations taking place. And advertisers in a hypersensitive, politically correct culture. You know, we've had radio and we've had TV and these advertiser challenges have always come up. It, it have always come up. It was conservatives that were uh, conservative moms, Christian moms that were protesting Dawson's Creek when it was on the air and trying to pressure uh, advertisers not to support programming like that. I mean, this the, the ad boycotts are, are not new at all. But with Twitter, it was this daily deluge of speech that started to become the epicenter of politics and culture because it was where all of the elites and hardcore fans, most politically active, uh, most active in pop culture spaces, Beyonce's fans, the Bayhive, uh, Taylor Swift fans, they were all on these platforms that were free, but sponsored by advertisers. And you, we thought political correctness was like defeated in the nineties and it, it just wasn't. And you can't really have that combination of things. We've even seen it become a problem. Uh, you know, it was, it was, there's no doubt in my mind that that was weighing heavily on Fox News, uh, and Rupert Murdoch in the Tucker Carlson decision, uh, because there were a lot of advertisers, despite how high his numbers were, that just didn't want to be, uh, the facing the backlash from all of the leftist groups that were organizing boycotts, uh, to, to pressure those advertisers, um, to, to were getting big visibility for big money, uh, for their products on Tucker's show, not to have any part of it. So, uh, it's this weird era uh, where you have what Polya wrote about in The Hollywood Reporter uh, in the middle of Me Too. She wrote that this idea that an artist has to be a good person is, quote, a sentimental canard of Victorian moralism, which is a perfect Pollyism. It might be my favorite Pollyism, um, a sentimental canard of Victorian moralism combined with this uh, emergence of platforms, free platforms, uh, free speech platforms uh, sponsored entirely by advertisers. And that is an impossible, impossible combination. Um, you know, when you, when you have those two things together and it's so sad and it makes it so hard to do what is necessary, which is consume art from morally compromised people. First of all, we're all more morally compromised, except for you and us. But um, <laughs> otherwise, it's impossible. Like, it's not to say you have to be a bad person to be a good artist, but a whole lot of good artists are really bad people. And we're not going to throw their art out of the public square. And we shouldn't because people don't want to uh, advertise their products on it. And obviously, the subscription model is, is booming right now for a reason. Um, but at the same time, it's just unhealthy to say you can't, uh, we're, we're imposing these impossible tests. We have no way of knowing what happened with Russell Brand. We do know that He's very clearly said that was, you know, he got sober and et cetera, et cetera. We all sort of knew that's who he was. We're not coming to him for advice on how to live a sexually pure life. That would be absurd. Um, people watch his show for his like heterodox take on politics. Um, so should Rumble be able to make money off of that? Yes. Yes. Rumble has to be able to make money off of that. Yeah, I mean, there's also the matter that, that these, because there's a larger question I'm not even going to dig into because I've been, you know, going back and forth on it in my own head for 
I think at least 20 years about morality and art. Um, but the, the specific matter of Me Too allegations, especially many years later, part of what bothers me is, is the idea that, you know, and, and this is another polyism because she's the, the woman of the age, clearly. Um, but look, putting aside cases of very clear enforceable rape, right? Um, put those in one category. She's like, basically, we have spent the last couple decades adjudicating what are essentially gray area cases. He said, she said, um, cases in which there is a tangle of motivations, sometimes, you know, self-rationalization. Um, you have the matter, simple matter, even if everybody's being honest involved, right? The simple matter that, you know, what someone feels internally is not necessarily what they project externally. And the question is, you know, would, would a, a reasonable or decent person, you know, have interpreted correctly, like uh, the signals that a woman is giving. And then on, if you layer on top of all of that, you know, <laughs> female sexuality is not compatible in many ways with giving clear instructions like that. Um, and I know that that's whatever. I don't know why that's even remotely controversial to say. It's it's so obvious that um, you know, if there's nothing more at odds with with female sexuality than, for example, laying out with clarity, it, it, with clarity and no plausible deniability, exactly which sex acts with which men she is willing to do. Like this is such a idiotic and obviously incompatible with the actual you know, dynamics of any of this that is going on. And I, I know that like, look, if, if you get drawn as a pool, you know, jury pool for something like this, it's difficult enough. And I know that many women do not get justice in court exactly because it's very difficult to hash out after the fact what happened in, in one of these like private moments with two different people in their own heads with, you know, a thousand motivations of each, right? Unless it is that clear case of forcible rape. And so I, I understand that that means necessarily that there are probably women who were in the right and, and could not get justice, right? I just accept this as part of the world. Um, but the idea that now we're going to pretend that these things are clear cut and that we can, we, the public, from limited and biased information, unlike what you would get in a courtroom where there are strict rules about what evidence comes in and what evidence doesn't come in, although I would bracket here, those rules changed dramatically in the 1970s just with regard to sex and sexual assault cases, right? Um, and we can discuss whether that was a good idea, but the, the rules of evidence, even in court, are looser um, or, or in some cases stricter. They favor, favor the, the woman more or the accuser more. Uh, then, it, it, like, let's say you're accusing somebody of, of just pure assault as opposed to sexual assault. Uh, they actually favor the victim more in court. So we're saying we already have somewhat of a rigged system in, in court um, for the accuser. Um, but still, you know, there are rules about what kind of evidence can come in, right? Um, the jury has to decide, you know, uh, based on on actions after the fact as well, which is so often a case these college cases, right, where they're, you know, the girl continues going out with the guy after the alleged rape for the next, you know, year and a half. And then when they break up is when she decides that to bring the case, like, all of these relevant facts can be, to the extent possible in, in a human system adjudicated in a courtroom. Um, the idea that 20 years later, in these kinds of extremely gray cases, we're going to all sit 
in public when we know, we know that the reason that this guy was selected, and I don't care about the politics of Russell Brand. I never found him particularly compelling, right? But like, um, we know that the reason he was selected now and not 10 years ago when he was actually doing these things is because his politics has changed, right? I don't know. Oh. It just seems like there's, there's, there's a lot of dishonesty going on and we're all supposed to pretend that that entire background of, of, you know, the opaqueness of female sexuality to begin with, the fact that these are decades ago, the fact that um, it's obviously that he's a political target, the fact that the media is going for it, the fact all of what you brought up about the fact that, you know, um, this has been a, an excuse to just bring down the censorship hammer on what he's been saying that's been unrelated to any of this, right? I'm, I'm, I don't think all of that adds up to any possibility of finding out what happened between Russell Brand and this list of women 20 years ago. I just, I, I don't, I, I resent being roped into the task of trying to do that. It's impossible. It kind of reminds me of how Maureen Dowd and other women reacted to Bill Clinton exploiting. And I, I you and I might disagree over whether uh, what he and Monica Lewinsky did amounts to exploitation. I think it's the, the power dynamic there is kind of unavoidably exploitive, but I will say how Maureen Dowd reacted to that and, and many other feminists at the time was basically, he's a good president. So, so what? Um, and, you know, that's a kind of different can of worms, but in a sense, this does re remind me of that reaction um, because it's this idea, like you see people as they see people as kind of blunt force political objects or cultural objects. And when they no longer become useful, um, the, the sort of gatekeepers of culture will figure out how to give them the boot. And Russell Brand, um, how many people, I mean, this is, the, there are stories of, uh, him being mocked during BBC shows, um, and not wanting to take the mockery over this allegedly, uh, not too long ago. But this seems to have, again, been a quote unquote open secret in Hollywood. And of course it was because he talks about it. Uh, and so why is it that 10, 20 years ago, uh, everyone in Hollywood was still flinging doors open to Russell Brand and they are now sort of eagerly closing those doors? Is it because their sexual mores and standards have changed? I just don't think that's the case. I think it is all about superficial signaling, uh, how they appear in public as opposed to, you know, how they actually think about some of these things. Um, and, and that is for that to be the standard then that changes our ability to have important conversations, to hash them out in artistic forums and political forums is absurd. It's not a good, I mean, it's, it's not a, a sound consistent argument, but it's, it feels like it's the one that's winning because they control all of the levers of power. Well, and Woody Allen can't find a distributor for his new movie, which has, as far as I know, nothing to do with his sexual escapades, unlike some of his other movies. Um, and actually, you know what, Ines, like you and I have, like disagree on uh, your, your co-host, uh, Richard, and I am so glad that they still published his book, that his publisher still went on with his book. I found that to be a very heartening sign. And I think it's one that wouldn't have happened uh, just a couple of years ago. And so like, it's true, there's a, a tug of war going on right now. Um, but the idea that people who have 
what you consider really bad ideas shouldn't have like be have access to to platforms um it, all that does is let things fester and uh, metastasize in the shadows instead of being exposed to if you think that you have the sunlight uh expose it and maybe you don't have the sunlight and maybe the other person does and we can all make our decision uh because that's how we've decided to do things into the west is to in the west is to hash these things out as political bodies as social bodies yeah, I mean, I guess two things. One, um, Richard wrote an interesting postmortem on cancellation and failed cancellation. I think it's fair to say at this point. Um, and where he said it, basically, it's bifurcated, right? Where the right is finally hardening up to these cancellation attempts to the extent that, you know, even something that um, like I think even Richard would describe, like his his former, um, some of his former writings as, as like far beyond the pale, and not only that, I think he would describe them as stupid in some ways. Um, but I don't know. To me, this is crucial to the understanding of the right. And I've now been, I guess, the one of several defenders of the, the three people canceled in a row for these kinds of things. Pedro Gonzalez, Richard Hadania, and uh, Nate Hawkman, right? Nate being the least fair of the three by far. Um, he did, by the way, Nate, Nate did not make that video with the Nazi symbol. He merely retweeted it and didn't realize what it had at the end. I mean, I'm not sure I wouldn't, we'll get to world war two in this episode, by the way, because there are some people who really don't know much about <laughs> world war two, but, but the, 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 the <laughs> symbol at the end, like, yeah, it seems vaguely fascist, but like, I, I don't know that I would have immediately made that association either. Um, I didn't so know what the sun the and was. Those. Yeah. I, didn't know I mean, it was. Anyway. I, I feel like I know a fair bit about World War II. Um, and I didn't know what it was either. I had to be told, right? So I, his is by far the least fair of those um, sort of cancellation attempts. But even when it involves actual stuff that I deeply disagree with, I really, I think the right has to harden up to this stuff. You cannot, you know, pull the trigger on command on people. Um, and furthermore, you know, there's this fear of talking to people with radical politics that just doesn't exist on the left at all. Um, nobody has ever been canceled for having a, for example, a college fascination with Stalin um, or a continuing fascination with, with uh, the politics of, of communism and Stalin, like your co-host. Um. <laughs> <laughs> he, he likes to put the book of Lenin. We each got to bring our own, uh, as the producers described knickknacks to the new set. And he likes to put the, the book of Lenin so that it's, uh, always resting like just above my head Lenin is just like floating over me in the shot Lenin is your sort of damocles on the show yes exactly <laughs> he's just gonna to execute you as a kulak um <laughs> no and and but I, I just as an aside that's sort of i think the this conversation is probably more relevant than the point i'm gonna make but i i, I don't know it's a good it's a good test case the uh monica Lewinsky thing right because on the one hand, to the extent that one cares about power dynamics, there's no clearer potential for that kind of power dynamic abuse than the president of the United States and a 22-year-old intern, right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, that is almost certainly exactly what she found hot about it at the time. And she was an adult. So there's no way to separate that kind of power dynamics. And many of these other dynamics that the left has declared forbidden from sex period and if you do you end up with like no sex which is i guess what gen z is having um but 
I don't think there's a way to separate that dynamic. Now, do I think it can be abused? Of course. But like the, those abuses are generally not straightforward. Usually they're complicated and like psychologically <laughs> sometimes devious, you know, like it, it just, you might be able to know what happened between, you might be able to know what happened between your friend and her boyfriend because you were had a front row street seat to it. Um, you will never know what happened between, you know, two people 20 years ago in a hotel room when one of them's a celebrity. Do you, th by the way, do you think that these women did not know Russell Brand's reputation at the time? That's probably why they were excited that he was hitting on them because he was a celebrity who was known for what was the award he got? Like he had, you know, screwed his way through all of the British Isles. There's an award, award for that? Bang yeah. Like the, the most shagged award or something. They I literally gave an also award got for banging award. women. I think Lennon yeah. also got that one. Yeah, that's true. That's a no, that's I a little he, history. I, I think I think I think blood got him off more, but anyway. Uh, that um, it, it, they did think that he had syphilis, though. That is a theory. Well, um, <laughs> actually, let's let's talk about World War II because this is <laughs> actually yeah, relevant. Let's take um, a hard pivot from Russell Brand to World War II. <laughs> yeah. No, well, Donald so, Trump did say that. What did he say? AIDS was his Vietnam. <laughs> his personal um, Vietnam. Yeah, I remember that song by Pink in the early 2000s called Vietnam, which was basically that, like, my relationship is my Vietnam. Well, um, I was unaware of that song, but I'm Well, I'll send it to you. It's probably before your time, Emily. It's a little young. Um. No, but but so the reason that I am thinking about World War II is um, there there's this this now this just layers and layers of stupidity. This story that broke um, a few days ago because the Canadian Parliament invited, along with Zelensky, um, I assume he traveled with the, the Zelensky's delegation. He's a you know a national hero for Ukraine from World War II, which immediately anybody who knows anything about the battle lines there would say, well, yeah, uh, maybe you should check that this guy wasn't a Nazi. Um, and it turns out that he was. And, and not only was he allied with the Nazis, he was like an SS. He was in an SS, SS attachment. Yeah. Um, so the, the first layer of stupidity, of course, is like that nobody thought to check this before. Like you just take what? Ukrainian hero from 1944 and you didn't check uh, anything about what why he's called being called a hero but then there was the second layer of stupidity on top of it in the discourse which I saw you know a bunch of, of people on the right you know sort of pile on and say well like <laughs> how can we uh, ally ourselves with Nazis like this is horrible um, and had absolutely no understanding of, of what happened in that region I mean uh there was a five-way bloodbath, at least five-way bloodbath in, in that kind of swath of territory that's rightly called the Bloodlands um, between, you know, the, the German army, the Red Army, right? And then Ukrainians, Poles, Jews, some smaller ethnicities also. And that it's a story that played out also to some extent in the Baltics. Um, look, it's it, it was a, a extremely disturbing and bloody history there in which most people took their turns being victims and victimizers. Um, most people took a turn before in front of and behind the gun. And there were many allyships made. I mean, you're talking about a Ukraine coming off the Holdemore where they were intentionally starved by the millions uh, to the, to the point of family cannibalism. 
Um, and the idea that it's crazy that they would ally with Nazi Germany against their Soviet oppressors is also just like completely lacking in, in history. And then there was the final layer. I'm sure we'll get to three other idiocies um, with this story before it, it burns out. But then I saw like the Libs sort of defending themselves um, for, for clapping for an SS officer um, <laughs> by saying, well, Canada and the United States uh, firebombed Dresden. So really aren't all sides equally war criminals. Is that why Operation um, Paperclip was trending? I saw that Operation Paperclip yes. was trending on Twitter yes. and I was like, I am turning this off for the day. Yes. Um, and the relevancy of all of this, I think, uh, does go back to, I don't know if you we remember when Oprah got, not Oprah, um, I'm going to get dragged for confusing this, Whoopi Goldberg got to, because I think Oprah said something similar um, several years ago, by the way, but um, Whoopi Goldberg saying that the Holocaust wasn't about race because it was yes. two groups of white people, right? Yes. Um, and people calling her anti-Semitic, which is not true. She's just being an idiot. Um but it's it's trying to apply this this very 2023 stupid understanding of race and of who the bad guys are. And I'm starting to wonder if if both the American left and right can conceive of any evil that isn't Nazis. You know, like the, the understanding <laughs> of the level of evil coming from the other side of the continent. You know, there were two monsters grappling on the European continent, you know, not just one and and. I'm not even disagreeing that the U.S., as though some historians do, um, should have allied itself with Uncle Joe during that war. But no, you answer me this, Emily. Why? Why is it that that the American understanding, contemporary American understanding, is so so heavily weighted towards the only thing that people know is that Hitler was a bad guy, right? There's like no understanding that there were other bad guys involved even in World War II, and that, but, but why is it that there is no um, cultural understanding of what the Soviet Union did either during World War II or before that? Why is that history so impossibly opaque or buried in America to the point where nobody knows anything about it unless you're like a crazy person or a nerd or think about the Roman Empire a thousand times a day? Um, so like, why, why is that history completely lopsided? Is it just because we let the communists, you know, we should have gone further with Joseph McCarthy? And But what what happened? Why is it that nobody knows this, that Stalin was a bad guy I, also? I was going to say it's because we have like a very um, American-centric version of World War II that we tell ourselves, but that's not right. Um, and, and in that sort of American centric story, of course, of course, you would necessarily talk less about the Soviet Union, given our alliance with the Soviet Union. So it would make it would sort of be logical. But the reason that's that can't be right is because we also uh, so often lose sight of the evil that was fought uh, in Asia, in the Pacific. Uh, we, we never I mean, people yeah, don't true. know about Tojo like we don't even we have, we have so little concept of uh, the atrocities um, committed by Japan. And some people would say it's because we, you know, committed the mother of all atrocities by, you know, dropping atomic bombs on Japan. So we necessarily give Japan some sort of uh, pass in our moral imaginations because we just don't want to sort of pick at that scab. Um, but I actually don't think that's true um, because the scale of the atrocities committed by the Japanese in the years leading up to World War II and, and during World War II, uh, there is so much there. Um, I, I genuinely think 
it has to be this strange, like American, is it American guilt? I mean, that's the the question, like that we were in alliance with the Soviet Union and we bombed Japan that we don't want to talk about these two other uh, so very obvious examples or like even think about Che Guevara. How many people were walking around with Che Guevara shirts? Uh, is it because we're embarrassed by the, the CIA, which I think in, in many cases we should be, um, to the point where we don't want to talk about Che Guevara? Why is why are why did Obama feel perfectly comfortable going to Cuba? Um, I, I don't know if it, if it's just the sense of American guilt, which is obviously rooted in in some real concerns, um, but also maybe is preventing us. Like Hitler is the one enemy from our perspective that we the America's alleged and uh, serious. Evils, moral failings, just nothing stacks up on the moral scale to Hitler. Therefore, uh, it's the easiest, most obvious uh, source of our understanding of foreign evil, uh, what it's like to face up to a foreign enemy that that embodies evil, um, that it's what we're, we're comfortable with. I don't know. That, that's sort of also just conjecture. Yeah, I mean, I it, that's an interesting explanation that I hadn't thought of the like sort of self guilt but it, there is just a plain ignorance here like uh it's certainly true that culturally americans regard the swastika with 10 times more fear and hate um than they do the hammer and sickle mm -hmm. and that's not really justified by the historical facts not saying either one is uh, you know we can have an argument <laughs> where would you much where would you prefer to live in Nazi Germany or Stalin's USSR? I mean, depends on your ethnicity, really. Um, Aren't you both ethnically really? Jewish and Slavic? Mm -hmm. So you're the perfect person. Yeah, half and half. Um, <laughs> the perfect person to answer. <laughs> no. Uh, anyway, but but it's, it, Americans just don't regard like what you what you're talking about with the Che Guevara shirts that was everywhere when when we were growing up right like it was, was that urban outfitters celebrities yeah like printed on and and there were some I remember there were like some sort of libertarian leaning conservatives at the time were like this is the triumph of capitalism even Che's Che Guevara's yes. shirt gets slapped on a t-shirt and sold for three hundred dollars but I, I actually think that view is very short-sighted um it, the, the fact that, you know, we can celebrate mass murdering communists, but I mean, think about the comparable reaction, right? If someone has Goebbels on a shirt mm -hmm. or like, it's just, it, it's, it's, I'm not saying it should be illegal or anything like that. I mean, it's just like the cultural reaction against one versus the other as though they are these wholly incomparable things um, is not warranted. And then leads to this, this kind of stupidity that is, where you, you are shocked to discover that Ukrainian partisans would ally with anyone against uh, against the Soviet army, you know, and against the Red Army and against, like, it just it, it just blows my mind. I'm sorry, this is probably just more of a personal rant because I, I just can't stand to watch all of these people clash. And even the right on this on, on Ukraine somehow jumps right back into the, the position of the left saying, like, you know, it's it's evil if if nationalism is evil, right? Like Ukrainian nationalism is the one nationalism that that the right thinks is evil and the left thinks is fantastic. Um, 
And it, it just it, all of this reference back to World War II with very little actual historical basis or understanding, as though there were like two sides in World War II that were lined up like little, you know, there was there was the, the big bad Hitler and then there were all of the people fighting for freedom and liberty. Um, to, there were and I'm not I'm not um actually knocking that with regard to the West and, and with regard to, to the UK and America. Um, but, you know, <laughs> speaking of, of Poland, like Poland was invaded from two sides by two different monsters at the start of the war. And neither uh, of them was America. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and then of course, yeah, like that was that, that's the cherry on the Sunday at the end. Oh yeah. Isn't, isn't American can aren't, aren't American Canada just as bad as these two 20th century monsters, both responsible for, for millions upon millions of, of horrendous and ugly deaths, right? Like, oh no, we're we're bad because we fought back and we we uh, you know dropped the bomb on Japan and we br- we dropped some firebombing on Dresden. Like that's supposed to make us the great moral evil. There's absolutely no moral clarity uh, at all. Um, more more stupid moral equivalent. Sorry, I am, I really am ranting now, but I, I just I hate to see when I'm scrolling down my timeline and it seems to happen just as often from the right now as it does from the left this kind of morally simplistic analysis where there's a single pole of badness and mm-hmm. you know another good example of this is when people were talking about uh, putin and this is to still this day i christopher caldwell is such a smart guy he's written so many smart things but he wrote something so impossibly stupid that i don't understand how how somebody so smart could write it which is he has this sentence in a long praising of Putin in 2017 saying, uh, well, Vladimir Putin is not a feminist NGO. <laughs> was this in Claremont? Um, no, actually it was in Imprimus. Um, okay. Like, as though those are the two poles of good and bad, right? Like, <laughs> right. either you're with Globo Homo or you're, and, and you're bad, or <laughs> you're, you're, you're Vladimir Putin must be good because he's not a feminist NGO from, you know, the West uh, that is 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 uh, endorsing transing the kids uh, around the world. Like, these are the two types of people in the world. <laughs> like, there's yeah. only a single, it's like a unipolar, and the left has the same thing with, with Nazis, right? It's a unipolar bad type. You are good insofar as you are not a Nazi and bad insofar as you're, like, there's no, no, um, recognition that one could be against Nazis and also, for example, be a mass genocidal murderer. Mm-hmm. Like, and I, we, we were mentioning earlier how Operation Paperclip is trending on Twitter, which is obviously about rat lines and the integration of former Nazis into the U.S. kind of military apparatus, the space program. And that to me seems to uh, confirm what we're talking about in the sense that the left is actually trying to muddy the waters on the U.S. and Hitler. And for the left, it's like everything has to come back to some sort of American evil as opposed to just sort of being able to. And and by the left, I mean, like, that's an attempt by sort of the fringe left. And I would say when it came to Che, obviously, Motorcycle Diaries was nominated for an Oscar. I think it actually won an Oscar when it came out. I remember that um, coming out. That it was successful. And I think this is like a similar attempt. It's just not one that's been mainstream for a number of reasons that it's, it's much more complicated, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think there is this uh, Americans are so receptive because we are, we were founded with this idea that we're striving to be a more perfect union. So uh, 
rather we like we so easily lose lose sight of the fact that that's a process because we are uh we are striving towards perfection uh we we are trying to perfect the system of self government and so when we fall short of that we're extremely sensitive about it and uh i i think that this is some of these things have been mainstreamed this like nuance gets papered over um, because for us, often we are so receptive to the idea that the most important thing is our moral failing because we're the people who are supposed to be uh, a cut above. And I was thinking as you're talking that Michael Knowles, somebody who I, I love Michael Knowles, he tweeted today something like, I'm beginning to believe that uh, Joe Biden is more evil than Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. And he was talking about Douglas Mackey, I think Christina Peshaw responded to him and said, like, you wouldn't be able to tweet this in um, Russia, something to that extent. And he said, well, Douglas Massey is facing uh, a decade in prison for a meme. And that's true. And that's it, none of this is to say that we couldn't easily turn into something um, really scary. I think we, we part of the reason you and I do what we do is to prevent that from happening because, you know, we, power in the hands of bad people can can go in a horrible direction. Um, and hopefully our system of government is uh, the best bulwark that has ever been invented to prevent that from happening. Um, but that to me just is <laughs> an impossible math problem. Like that, there is just no way um, I think you can, you can get from those two to, Joe Biden, as bad as I think Joe Biden is, uh, I just don't know what the point of even making that comparison is. And Michael, if he were here, would have a very articulate no. and smart response and we'd have a fun debate. But I, so, I, I think uh, it's I what you're getting at. Yeah, it's it's the moral equivalency is silly. Um, but even these comparisons are, are, are not, um, you know, there's the idiocy about the 20th century itself, which is now playing out and um, what we've been talking about. But I think the reason the comparison that Michael is making is, in my view, wrong is not because only because of the moral equivalence, um, which is a, a dumb moral equivalence. Clearly, you know, we we might get pretty bad or, or pretty tyrannical, but uh, we are we are not yet. You know, I, I don't even want to say on air what the kind of things that the Red Army was doing as it was pushing west, or uh, obviously what the what the Nazis did to their own Jewish population and other subhuman populations um what the japanese did to uh king yep um so there's no moral equivalence to that i don't think uh that's one reason it's wrong but the the more practical reason i find it wrong is because it's it's not helpful to think in 20th century terms about tyranny um because the shape of the system is very different, even though the outcomes are sometimes similar, right? So the Woody Allen thing is a really good example. That So Woody Allen's new film will not is not found a distributor in the United States. It will not be shown in the United States. It's being shown in Europe. It's opening in Europe now. But if you are an American, you cannot watch Woody Allen's film. That is the end result. Um, now, apparently, somebody sent me there's some, like, half-legal streaming service online where i'm you know there, there are sort of technological works workarounds it's like um, how we watched uh louis ck i love you daddy yeah and yeah i was thinking too. about that yeah so that's yeah. another example right where but so the, but the shape and how it got there is very different it's this this private uh collusion that's now being revealed with missouri v biden and everything else um that has plenty of tendrils coming from government um from from government agencies, uh, 
but but also has this very strong um, private component. It has a coordination component. It's not necessarily top down marching orders, but rather allegedly or superficially independent actors acting together because of shared background understanding uh, without the need to directly coordinate much of the time, like these distributors, right? They all understood Woody Allen's been me too'd. We can't distribute his movie. All of us understand this. We don't need a government to suggest it, right? Um, and, and it would be not only the wrong sort of leaving aside, <laughs> leaving aside mass genocide and that moral equivalence, it would be wrong even on this limited issue of censorship, right? The end result is the same. You know, my father couldn't grow up not being able to see most Western movies unless they made it through the communist censors. And fortunately, sometimes stupid and let through some good movies. But um, <laughs> like uh, that, that's the end result. And you could say the end result is the same. But if you don't understand that these are two different systems, the, the response that you have in fighting it is going to be radically different, perhaps diametrically opposite. I don't know, you know. Um, so in that sense, I feel like the equivalence is also not just morally wrong, um, but also it's not helpful for where we are right now to imagine the comparison, for example, of direct censorship in the Soviet Union um, of movies. That's we have to think about how to, how, you know, is it because we've bottlenecked uh, the distributor? I don't know anything about the distributor industry, to be clear. Is it because we've bottlenecked that too, there are too few actors that they can so easily coordinate like this? Yes. yes. Is it because they have the same background, culturally the same background, right? That, that um, you know, they all went to the same schools and so on. And then there's a long, you know, rant about what we've allowed our education systems to become. You know, how did it happen that these people with with plenty of market share and power all ended up thinking exactly the same way about this one movie. Like that is a very different problem than we have an overbearing government that doesn't want us to see a Woody Allen movie and is therefore taking it off the shelves. Like the way you address yes. that problem is very different than you just, the way you would address the former problem that actually exists in the United States. And so conflating them is not necessarily helpful, even though I think there's, you know, there's some benefit sometimes to make a limited comparison, but, um, in the same way that it's not helpful to, to like imagine that Ukrainian partisans, you know, uh, were joining Nazis because they they you know wanted to participate in the Holocaust, although many of them were anti-Semites. Like that, that's not a, a helpful construct because it actually has no contact with the actual life and challenges faced by being a Ukrainian in 1944. Mm -hmm. sitting in that piece of land like it doesn't have any contact with reality to describe it that way um and it doesn't have much contact with reality to describe the united states as having a similar censorship uh, for example regime as the soviet union it's not going to lead you to anything productive to think about it that way i don't think yeah no that's interesting on the narrow question of censorship too um 
Because yeah, Michael brought it to to Mackie, and I don't know exactly what he meant in the broader sense by those comparisons. I mean, maybe he meant because America is supposed to be better that it's even worse that Joe Biden is failing. I don't know. Um, but on the censorship point, I think that is a really interesting question because uh, to a lot of people on the left, what you just described about bottleneck studios um, comprised of people who all went to the same schools and thought the same way would sound a whole lot like uh the McCarthy era uh, when there was like pressure um, on, you know, time magazine uh, from the CIA and the CIA was actually doing covert propaganda operations in ways that are actually like mind boggling to think of like the origins of the Paris review (laughs) go back to the CIA. I mean, like this stuff is like, was very intentional and the scope of it was vast um, and I think, you know, to have made an overtly, what would have at the time been politically incorrect anti-American movie, um, or pro-communist, pro-Stalin movie would have basically been impossible. And so the left would look at that as almost quaint, um, that the right is now sort of concerned about these things. But I, what I would say to that is, we resolved those problems uh, without shedding blood. And that's incredible. And that puts us better uh, in a better position than those countries. Um, the, the, um, the cultural revolution that Mao explicitly waged in China, um, even if you look at how Xi Jinping is uh, enforcing cultural conformity in Xinjiang, um, like down to people's clothing and hairstyles, uh, what they read, all of those things. uh, We resolve those uh, in different ways. Uh, When, when Putin wanted to take uh, Crimea, um, that is not how we resolve things within our own country. And people can make arguments about our involvement uh, in Crimea, or uh, maybe that we are complicit in Xinjiang. Um, But the bottom line is that, we have a system that when there's a consensus developing that we are, are failing in some way, um, we are striving and successfully in more cases than not uh, to correct those. And we do have the, the freedoms as of right now. That isn't to say they aren't precious and taken for granted. And as I think a lot of people have recognized, but uh, we do have those freedoms and it, nobody has ever lived like that before on this scale. Um, so I'm with you, Inez. I, I think it's yeah, you know, the headline people is are always conveniently remarkable. people are always conveniently forgetting that politics is just the slightly more appetizing version of violence. Like it's it's a slightly better substitute for violence, without which, you know, if, if you if we cannot resolve things through a mutually uh legitimized political system, the the resort is violence between people. Um, this is not something we like to think about. And, and there's a bit of, and especially I think those of us in our generation of the end of history generation, mm-hmm. uh, don't, don't want to think about that, but that's fundamentally what it is. And this is why sometimes I, I think, you know, some parts of the left are sort of are, are hopelessly naive in, in terms of they're, they're very aware of how to apply power, but they have so little understanding of the possibilities of pushing people to the wall. Hmm. Um, 
and this is they are constantly going on about you know white supremacy or whatever in the United States and the domestic terror threat you know and the reality is they don't they they must not take these things very seriously um because they continue to push people so far into a corner um that it it speaks well you know of of the country and of the traditions that you're you've been referencing that it hasn't produced such you know a huge wave of violence um mm-hmm. Because that's that's the underlying condition of, of mankind, and not just of evil old white men uh, constantly demonized in America. They're actually rather tolerant, all all things considered. Um, but of all peoples, you know, everywhere, and the consequence of breakdown of politics is violence. Um, yeah, that's not that's not pleasant to think about. But speaking of of politics being just slightly more pleasant than war uh, <laughs> um i want to close this out briefly by talking about something political directly uh which is this two two part thing um so gavin newsom in california has vetoed this gender ideology bill this parental rights bill uh that was pushed by the by his own side by the left and this has uh brought some speculation that he's running and then there's also just today as far as i saw it anyway there was the announcement that gavin newsom and Ron DeSantis are going to have a debate on Fox, a debate of governors, um, which is sort of like what our politics would be like on Earth, too, uh, if we didn't have Donald Trump, Joe Biden and the army stampeding army of geriatrics who runs our country. You saw the New Yorker cover. I did see the New Yorker cover. I thought it was funny. Depicted exactly as a stampeding army of geriatrics. You see <laughs> Dave Feinstein, Mitch McConnell, uh, Trump, Biden, etc. Just describing for anyone who, who didn't have the privilege yet. Yeah. Um, so what do you think? Do you think that the uh, the left is going to throw over Joe for Gavin? Um, what do you think? How do you think that changes the race? Do you think, uh, I mean, are, are you, do you look forward to this kind of debate between governors? Do you think it will have any impact or is it just going to be like the last GOP debate, which was basically like a bunch of people vying for vice president. And it was kind of like, like watching the JV league. Uh, In totally unrelated news, Jimmy Carter, who uh, has been in hospice care for about a year was spotted at some sort of peanut festival in Georgia this week. And uh, that is my way of preference, prefacing this uh, revelation, which is I, the two things keeping me on edge every day about American politics is the possibility that at any moment um, I could get a push alert that, and I mean this seriously, the president of the United States has passed away in office. And secondly, uh, I could get a push alert that he's decided to step down. I think actually it's much less likely uh, that he steps down than something horrible and incapacitating um, takes place, or definitively incapacitating takes place. Uh, but those things could literally happen at any moment of the day. And I do think Gavin Newsom is banking on that. Um, 
banking that a something happens. And, and I actually think also people in the official democratic apparatus are encouraging him because they're also banking on that. So to create a sort of shadow candidacy that if something does happen in Biden world, he is perfectly positioned to step into the void. I think that's something that Joe Manchin was thinking about too. I don't know if he's actually going to launch his third party no labels bid. Uh, I don't know whether or not Gavin Newsom's sort of shadow candidacy makes that more or less likely. I'd have to think about it a little bit, but the the Gavin Newsom shadow candidacy I think is very much attached to official democratic circles where you have even David Ignatius writing for the Washington Post that Joe Biden is too old for the presidency, which is a remarkable turn of events in Washington D.C. Somebody the the president is known to read that the White House pays close attention to in a establishment columnist like Ignatius writing that is a, is the equivalent of a political earthquake in any other time period. Uh, but it was sort of just like a drop in the ocean because of this media cycle right now. Um, so I think what Newsom is doing is hedging his bets. I think the, the Democratic establishment is hedging their bets. I think they want to show Joe Biden that there's an option um, that could maybe be the thing that breaks the camel's back is him looking and saying, ah, yes, I have a capable successor. And if I step down at this point, the Democratic Party is going to be just fine because that neo-Rooseveltian track that I put the country on um, will be steered capably by uh, Gavin Newsom. If they can show him that, maybe it makes it more likely that he and his family feels okay with him stepping down. Um, and, and then if something does, God forbid, happen to the president while he's in office, uh, Newsom is well positioned just to, to fill the void right away. And there isn't this, uh, consternation, um, and this, this really difficult period of trying to figure out who the heir apparent is because he's been casting himself literally, uh, as the heir apparent by sitting, uh, across from Ron DeSantis in debates. I think it's always good to debate. Um, there's a, a great, I think you probably agree with this. Uh, ben Dominich wrote years ago uh, a criticism of the sort of Beltway media consensus that it was just so wonderful when John Stewart, uh, you know, legendarily destroyed Crossfire and just took down Tucker Carlson and I think it was Paul Begala at the time um, in one fell swoop on the show, saying that they're destroying America. Uh, and Ben's argument is that you know that was a really negative thing because we should want uh, public debate as much as is possible, theatrical or not. We should want public debate. We should want gloves off, uh, regular public confrontations between all sides of our politics. And uh, so I, I, I think it's sort of funny that Gavin Newsom is doing this and uh, Ron DeSantis isn't the front runner. Um, so it's, it's interesting, but I can only say, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it strikes me that that debate would be, would have a lot more contact with the actual concrete options before America. Right. And probably the preference are two regular Americans. There, there are two models going forward, the California model and the Florida model. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it strikes me that actually, you know, those are in terms not only of policy, which I realize no one cares about, but in terms of like actual quality of life, um, those are the two models for the country. And so, yes, I mean, I agree. I think it's a good thing, even if it's it's sort of disconnected from the presidential debate. I mean, I think that in itself is a 
a commentary on our politics that, and I think that's something that you've, you've written, I think so intelligently over and over again about is we have this one layer of our politics um, that isn't actually digging into a lot of the things that make or break, you know, comfortable life for Americans or the life that they've been used to uh, expecting Um, whether that's, you know, the deaths of despair and, and, um, addiction rates and, um, life expense expectancy going down, whether that's the quality of our food, which I'm totally convinced now is, is the culprit for Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. obesity crisis in America. What about also Um, the anxiety and depression crisis too? Right. The, everything, the, the way we've reacted to the pandemic, right. That the fact that, um, we have an entire generation that is essentially completely atomized that doesn't interact in, in real life is less likely to, you know, have had a beer or have a driver's license or I actually think that's a big deal. People, I'm sure there are people out there laughing saying like, that's not that important. I actually think it reflects something deeply important about life and the quality of American life. And it strikes me that these two models, California and Florida, um, are a better proxy for the future of our country in a way that both Biden and Trump to some extent were not good proxies for what their administrations have done. That's great. So I think that's really true. Like Biden's administration is extremely culturally left wing has done all kinds of crazy crap. Um, And I can give you a list a mile long, starting with title nine, but Biden himself presents as sort of a moderate labor Democrat. Um, (laughs) And people really think that's who he is because that's they see him a couple times and they're like, okay, maybe the guy's a doddering, you know, geriatric, but sort of a moderate labor Democrat. They don't understand that his administration has done all kinds of culturally radical things that they would disagree with. And similarly, you know, Donald Trump ran as breaking the mold for Republicans, but the two biggest achievements of his domestic administration, right, are, are tax cuts and deregulation, um, which is very much the Mitt Romney agenda. Um, and, and by the I'm way, not, I'm not against the Mitt Romney agenda, by the way. I just think in terms of priorities, I have different priorities, but I don't think it's a bad outcome. But to match sort of what's coming out with Donald out of Donald Trump's mouth with what his administration is doing, there's there's a mismatch there in a way that like California versus Florida is an actual representation of what it's like to live under Democrats and what it's like to live under Republicans. Right. Right. And I was going to say, like, we, we would not dispute that. uh properly implemented tax cuts and deregulation is bad for the working class. And in fact, I think you and I would both agree that properly executed, uh, those two things would, would boost the material circumstances of the working class. Again, properly implemented under Trump. There was a a blue collar increase in, in uh, real purchasing power. But at the same time, Parents end up, uh, working class parents who are Christian and can no longer send their kids to the public school, uh, because they're worried about, for very real reasons, very material concerns about their child's well-being if they send them to a public school. Not just these sort of abstract questions of values, which are important, but like actual, their physical well-being if they send their kid to a public school. And one day a teacher says, Oh, this is, I'm relaying part of a real story. Are you transgender? Okay, start using this bathroom and starts that kid down this long, long path towards uh, short-term misery and, and likely long-term misery 
that comes right out of that parent's pocketbook. That is immense stress. That is emotional pain. Uh, and so if you ask that parent whether they would rather have a tax cut or something that uh, would would let them send their kids to a public school, to have a public school that is creating a community they're proud of and can trust in, uh, I think a whole lot of them, maybe not all of them, I think a whole lot of them would prefer a legislative priority from a Republican president, a Republican House, a Republican Senate that deals with these questions. Um, and, and that is one of the things that uh, the, the sort of official Republican role continues to misunderstand um, and to communicate about poorly. And your point about these two, I want to ask you a question, actually, because you're from California. Um, I think the, these two examples are A, exactly accurate. Uh, I shouldn't say exactly, but are, are fairly accurate representations of these two uh, worldviews being implemented on a, a serious state level. Um, and I think when you put them side by side, it is beyond obvious which one is in which place is better to live. And I think, you know, Americans are voting with their feet in that sense, their feet, their feet in that sense. Um, and, you know, aside from the very like clear quantitative metrics, um, that just seems very obvious to me. On the other hand, I think a lot of Californians, even wealthy Californians, um, are probably happy to say yes. Uh, I would rather live in California than Florida. I would rather uh, support this this welfare state, have compassionate policies, and uh, you know believe in the full LGBTQ agenda, um, and feel that my state believes in that too, than live in Florida. I, I think a lot of them, again, like wealthy people. In fact, they live, they still live there, so obviously they do think that. Um, yeah, I think there's some people that are exasperated with it and tired about it. Um, but I think if you asked them side by side, a lot of people would stay in California. Well, leaving aside, I mean, the fact that people don't – people – I mean, moving has its own costs, right? Um, people have family. Yeah. And, and, and obviously, I think, obviously, California is the more beautiful state. Um, I think weather. that's true. I think that's true. Um, objectively – there, I, I mean, I, I sometimes wonder what would have happened to California if the weather was like Detroit. Have you have you seen L.A. Confidential? Mm-hmm. Love that movie. So I tweeted the opening to it a couple weeks ago because the opening to it is all of these um, advertisements about California, living in California um, with this like sort of audio narration about how it's like accessible and beautiful to the middle class, whatever. And it gives me the biggest um, pang in my stomach uh, about the United States that like, it just makes me almost more emotional than anything um, about the fate of the country because California as Didion has written so uh, eloquently about was this beacon of American hope and Liberty and, and, the pioneer spirit um, in the American sort of iconography, all of this comes together in California and it is now hell on earth. Um, and that sort of Sultanitsyn question of freedom, uh, I think is, is really relevant to the entire state of, of California. Yeah. California's, it makes me sad. Um, it was, as you're saying that it was the California dream within the American dream. And that was a dream that was actually, very, very associated in a way that I'm sure, you know, 
um, some of your counterpoints buddies um, would like, uh, breaking points buddies would like, uh, with with the success of the middle class, with with the boom of the American middle class in the 1950s and 60s, um, with the kind of life that became possible for somebody, uh, you know, oftentimes without then, uh, much many fewer people, without a college degree, without higher, you know, sort of learning or training, but somebody who was, you know, dedicated and smart and willing to apply themselves, uh, that, that the life on the single family income, the nice Eichler house in, in, uh, in the Bay Area, um, that, that you could provide for a family and a good life uh, with a, with a you know car, two cars in the garage and a chicken in every pot in California that was the California dream um, and it was very connected to this huge middle class um, that's the exact inverse of what California is now California is a place for the hyper wealthy and the dependent class there is the the middle class in California is being squeezed in every conceivable way that they could be squeezed. Um, they're, they're being squeezed by the taxes and paying for the enormous uh, benefits and welfare state that is so attractive that it attracts literally bums from the entire country. Um, it's a great place to be homeless until... It is an amazing you, place to be homeless. Until um, you get the... You know, in, until you buy... Uh, a drug that is laced with fentanyl or trank, then it's not so good because you can't get help. Yeah. Well, and then also, you know, the, the safety that they rely on, um, you know, to have those, those Eichler neighborhoods um, is even in some of the nicer neighborhoods now being threatened, um, particularly by, by the inability to deal with what are basically overlapping categories of, uh, mentally uh, disconnected from reality uh, and drug addicts on the street um, that you must be very wealthy to escape. They've been slammed with the, the cost of housing, um, which has been a bit of a, like a NIMBY esque problem as well. Um, so th there's a lot that the housing, you know, crisis in California is, has many, many antecedents and would take up a whole show to talk about it. Um, and, and probably would, I would need to bring someone who knows more. I only know the surface level, but, um, nowhere I've ever lived, including Manhattan has the level of housing crisis that, um, the Bay area has and, and that California in general has, um, it, it, it there are so many people, uh, who are commuting, uh, three three hours each way uh, in in incredible traffic on roads that are dilapidated and have not you know have not kept up with the influx of people to California. There's a demographic element. This is why it's like sort of a microcosm of of that's why I say this really is this California versus Florida route, right? Mm -hmm. It really represents two directions America can go. Um, to the to the point where where it has ended up now. And I think this is a perfect encapsulation in, in downtown LA, which is scary in a way that I cannot recall it being in my living memory. Um, basically, there are these luxury apartment buildings, many of them still in downtown Los Angeles with very nice glass penthouses. Um, and the people who live in there, what um, my LA friends are telling me is those, those uh, buildings are building what they call amenity decks. Uh, 
which is not just, you know, it makes sense. Like a, a luxury apartment building would have, you know, a garage and a gym, right? That those things make sense, but they are building what are essentially a convenience store and a kind and like a, a happy hour bar uh, mm-hmm. place to hang out. Now, this is not new to have a kind of a rec room or whatever, but they're building these very consistently so that you never have to run out and leave your building um, yeah. because it is, you are actively hunted by the Morlocks below. Uh, <laughs> there, there's literally, the streets of downtown LA is, are run by insane homeless people. Um, they, and they will follow you and scream at you and harass you um, in a way that even in East Coast cities I've not encountered, although DC in certain parts comes close. Um, but so, so these, these like very wealthy Los Angeles people will live in these glass towers. They, if they need to run out, you know, to get a glass of wine or to, um, you know, grab shampoo, they can do that all within their building. Um, and then they can go down to the garage, get in their cars and drive out to an office building in some other part, park in that garage, go up, make their money. And can nev- they never, inter- they never have to interact with, basically the disorder on the street because it has become so dangerous and sad to interact on the street. And I, th- I mean, that is the symbol to me of California is those amenity decks. Same thing with the, the reason there was the interlabor sort of interleft fight about the Google buses in San Francisco, right? Like there's all this infrastructure built to essentially make it so that the rich people in California can completely separate them from themselves from the consequences that the middle class has to deal with all the time, let alone the working class, which is basically being driven out by the housing prices three or four hours out. I mean, they're like Danville around the Bay area is being built up, right? This, that would right. Be, when I was a kid, that would be crazy. Gilroy. Um, well, Loudoun County in DC. I mean, there's like Microsoft is in like Reston. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, uh, there's some different dynamics. Virginia still allows building. Right. Like anyway, for now, <laughs> for now, all, all of this to say is that a state that just, you know, 50 or 60 years ago was literally the dream within the American dream for the middle class has become a place where the middle class cannot culturally and to, to add the element that you were talking about, about sending kids to school where you have no control over what, you know, the quote unquote professionals are doing to your child up to and including recommending them for life altering drugs and surgery uh, without your consent or even knowledge. Uh, so you cannot trust the public schools, right? So that's another aspect of, well, then you need to be able to homeschool or pay for a private school. And people don't have the money to do that unless they're very wealthy. Um, there's just the, the, the public services are a disaster. It's there's literally it's a third world country. I, there's um, I was reading this article about San Jose DMV where uh, hmm. you have to bribe a Sherpa basically, mm-hmm. to take your application into the, the DMV. And I'm not speaking literally about Sherpas. I'm saying somebody who piggybacks your application because there are people who have their contacts at the DMV and you basically have to pay them a bribe so that they will go and talk to their friend and actually get your stuff processed from the DMV. That's literal third world. The, the Soviet stuff. patronage That's, system. Yeah, It's it's routing around. The, the formal system is so uh, broken that you revert to the kind of private bribery system in order to get anything done. The black market is more functional than the real market, right? Um, anyway, so that that's, I mean, to me, that is like the essence of, of where we're going. It's become impossible both culturally and financially in California to 
I don't know, raise a family to live a normal American middle-class life. Um, but for both reasons, economic and cultural in equal measure. And that, that is, I think, I think that again, I think that has more contact with the future we can expect if Democrats retain power in their current trajectory in the country. Um, and I think Florida would be a, it's a well-executed, I'm not so sure that Florida is the result of having Republicans in power. That To me, that would be a best case scenario in the sense that it's a very well-executed um, and thoughtful Republican agenda. But in Florida, as far as I can tell, yes, they have some problems with housing costs precisely because everyone is moving there and they're, they're starting to deal with that problem. But where you can rely on the public schools uh, to have some control over what your kids learn. And if not, you, there are school choice programs to allow you to go somewhere else um, where there aren't, isn't mass disorder in Miami where crime is going down or holding steady, where, you know, homeless people are not permitted to simply, you know, run the entire city. Um, actually a friend, a, a Los Angelinos friend of mine um, who was texting me just today is like, yeah, if I park, there's like a total two standard of laws. Cause if I park with my bumper hanging over the curb oh, yeah. you know, by six inches, I oh, get yeah. a massive ticket, but there are people, homeless people parked all over the city who haven't moved their cars in months and nobody is ticketing them. Um, there's no anyway, consequences it, it, if you break somebody's window. And I'm talking about DC, like yeah. DC, LA, San Francisco, you could break somebody's window, break into their car. And, uh, that you are more likely to suffer consequences for being uh, misreading one of the 25 parking signs, uh, assigned to each spot than actually doing that. Right. It's, it's again and again since 2020, the thing that just keeps popping up as, exactly what describes our situation is Abraham Lincoln in the Lyceum Address, where he basically lays out two groups of people, you know, the the chaotic, the lawless, um, the, the unproductive citizen, of course, has no love for government or law and order um, and senses very quickly when there are no consequences for their behavior. But, but the way that regimes collapse and governments collapse is actually when the second group of people who are law-abiding and hardworking and trying to make a living realize that, that the government is actually on the side of the antisocials and not on theirs, right? When they realize that, it are, that it's not on their side, that they're going to be screwed in every step of the way, that they're going to get an, you know, a, a $300 ticket for breaking the minutiae of bureaucratic rules that make it impossible to like do basic things, but that mass lawbreaking or shoplifting, you know, just walking into a store and lifting things off the shelves is going to go unpunished. That person also has no investment in his own government or the stability of his own state mm -hmm. because it's against him and he knows it. And uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I, that is the, that is, I think a quite, stark difference between the two paths that America can go down. And that's aside from the presidential debate, aside from, you know, <laughs> the, the sort of the also apocalyptic stuff um, that, that is going on between Trump and Biden, two guys who are either going to win or go to jail. Um, underlying that is a, a, a very, I think, pragmatic and, and um, pocketbook level life, quality level uh, comparison.
between California and Florida. I think that's such a good point. I hadn't thought about it. And the last thing I'll say is uh, you were quoted in a, a Federalist story not too long ago that had its origins in a walk that I took in downtown LA where, yes, there's this sort of uh, detritus and the the horrific consequences of um, you know, falsely compassionate policies everywhere you look that uh, you sacrifice your safety and security at the altar of uh, virtue signaling and poorly thought out uh, experiments, human experiments, essentially. But there was also a sign uh, that caught my attention, uh, basically encouraging people to snitch on each other for hate incidents, not hate crimes, uh, but also hate incidents. And as we looked into it, that was government money. That was, uh, and, and it was government combined with money from Kaiser Permanente and other corporate giants. Uh, it was under the auspices of LA County though. So it was officially a government snitch line. When you go to their website, it's full of stuff that's BLM friendly, trans friendly. They wouldn't respond to comment requests about how they defined hate. Um, it, it's pretty clear that it's a snitch line for anybody who doesn't agree fully with the progressive agenda uh, sponsored by the government and big business. And as you were talking, it just struck me um, to your point that like this combination of cultural leftism and crony capitalism, like with PG&E, for instance, in California, they they were held, I think, legally culpable for uh, what was the was it the Paradise Fire? It was one of the ones uh, like five years ago, a horrific fire. They uh, b- because basically the state of California gave them so much leeway because they had so much power, uh, they became unaccountable. Crony capitalism and cultural leftism uh, is the result of any effort to try to organize democratic socialism. I'm sorry. Like it, it is. That's this is basically the only way that this can go, which means you have high earners with disproportionate power su- subsidizing miserable lives of of low earners. It just like the math doesn't work out at all and this is what it equals. Like it equals California. Uh, you just put that equation on the blackboard. Um it's it's just utterly miserable. Um it, it's it's unworkable. Uh, and it's a place where elites will uh, dangle you by strings in order to comply. Um, and they're, you know, they're not going to pay you well in the process, no matter how you vote, because they have disproportionate power. So anyway, all that is to say, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And both of us would come down on the side of, of DeSantis in that debate. And I think for reasons uh, that the left has not fully grappled with. Yeah, look, I mean, California is spawning uh, like every time you see somebody in the media who is on the right and is basically completely blackpilled and extremely aggressive in fighting the left, there's a better than average chance that that person comes from California. Stephen Miller, Mike Anton, (laughs) um, a lot of the Claremont guys, right? Uh, Me, um, Jeremy Carl, who's been a, a... Uh, guess in this podcast, right? I think living under that kind of system in the United States uh, brings, makes, makes the question urgent uh, in a very direct and lifestyle oriented sort of way that is quite apart from abstract politics or what gets covered sort of day to day or or superficial list of policies. But what, what it is like uh, the quality of life that is possible in California today versus in California in 1960 is 
unimaginably different. And you see that that sadness in the generations of people who have seen, instead of the American dream always escalating up, have seen that the state that they live in has been in a constant process of degradation for the mm. last 30 to 40 years, really. Mm. And it's it's a particularly blackpilling thing, I think, for an American because American, you know, we, we always we always were going up. Um, mm-hmm. Life was always getting better and more prosperous and freer. Um, and here we have the exact opposite. So I think it's a very, that's why you end up getting a lot of super black pilled people out of California. Emily, uh, thanks for for joining me for another one of these these episodes. This one was extra long. Sorry to our listeners, but um, no, 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 you're welcome. California is <laughs> you're welcome for an additional several <laughs> additional fifteen minutes for me and Emily here. It's our um, pleasure to serve. Well, thank thanks again, Emily. Uh, <laughs> even though you're not interesting, you you know you managed to be an interesting guest this time. I guess we'll 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 keep you around. Maybe the nicest thing Inez has ever said to me. <laughs> oh, well, she forgot Andrew Breitbart among Californians. Black yes, Black yes, that's a good, ex- that's a really good example. Um, so thanks to Emily and thanks to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman, including After Dark, is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Those comments, reviews, they really help with the all-overseeing algorithm. of, of uh, sh- So it'll show this podcast to people who might like it. Um, so please do do that. Do that. Uh, and that's, that's about it for us this week. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon. <laughs>